0: Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I've been interviewed and shared those conversations on capital allocators, I made reference to a special experience I participated in for the last five years called The Hero's Journey. The week-long journey in the mountains of West Virginia provides a setting and platform for each participant to access their best self. My guest on today's show is Michael Mervash, the deeply insightful executive director and founder of the Hero's Journey Foundation, an organization that provides experiential learning opportunities for human development and transformation based on Joseph Campbell's mythic Hero's Journey. He has a passion and indescribable skill in enlivening the developmental process and fostering vitality, meaning, and well-being in individuals, groups, and organizations. When not running programs or training others, Michael practices psychotherapy at the Nguyen Center in Pittsburgh, where he has professionally resided for 25 years. Our conversation took place in the mountains towards the end of this year's journey and is quite different from those you may be accustomed to hearing on the show. We cover Michael's path to creating the experience, the myth of the hero, lessons in how the world actually works, the call to adventure, perfectionism, uncertainty, fear, and poetry. If you're intrigued, I strongly encourage you to check out heroesjourneyfoundation.org. Spaces are limited for the annual summer men's and women's journeys, so sign up for next year's trip at the website or reach out to me to find out more. I intend to be back on the mountain next year and hope to see you there. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Mervash. Michael, we are in the mountains of West Virginia in the late innings of another impactful hero's journey. I'm really excited after the impact you've had on my life the last five years to be able to share your story. So why don't we start with where
1: it all began for you? Well, I came out of my mother, awful young, (laughs) (laughs) in the culture of the steel mills of Pittsburgh and shaped by that world, blue-collar world of smoke and fire and steel and forging out a living and uh, grinding out a life with... Being given just the right amount of things to keep me going and deprived of the right amount of things to keep me unfed and denied enough to make me search and where did that search start? I don't really know you know where that search started, but the I think the the drive you know the sense of something beyond what we do day to day and beyond the stories that were told to me when I realized there's another story it probably wasn't my adolescence when I realized that there's something about magic and mystery and beauty that that's called, you know, the opposite sex. <laughs> 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 you know, a worthy a god as any and and nature. You know, I had the the fortune of being part of a youth group that would go on retreats, you know, and a man who to this day, I stay close to who took me along and bailed me out of trouble and looked after me and in his own unaware way, helped me navigate the world beyond my immediate family, which is, you know, the first threshold is how does the world find you and meet you beyond your parents? And many of us don't make it that far, really.
0: Yeah. What formative experience led you to realize that? You had the ability to steer the life in the direction you
1: wanted. You're assuming I have that ability. (laughs) One day, maybe. (laughs) Well, see, I I used to think I was steering, you know, and I steered my life uh, exactly how I was trained to steer. I learned how to drive well. I know how to take hold of the wheel. I know how to take charge of the gas pedal. And I knew how to drive it into the ditch. Or actually, you know, the car took itself there, you know, with the ways the culture shaped me and taught me, if you follow this way of life, and you do exactly how we train you, and you follow the commandments, and you obey the rules, and you climb this ladder, you will enter the kingdom of something and get your due. And I, I, like many, many people, bought in fully... And I played that game. I looked to be good at it. And one day in my late 20s, and then again in my early 30s, I realized the prescription does not work. And it all fell down. And and the wheel came off.
0: Yeah, what happened for you when the wheels came off?
1: Uh, My marriage failed. And it wasn't like the fairy tale. and You can do all the right things, and you can love one another even. That doesn't mean it works. And I started to buy in and feel like, oh, shit, I'm a failure. Because if you don't follow the rules and it doesn't work, then you failed. And then you try harder. You repent and try again. And you repent and try again. And I was fortunate enough to slip through into another way and have opportunities conspire to show me there's a world beyond right and wrong, good or bad, you and me. Which opportunity stands out for you? I had many of them, but definitive ones, you know, those ones that are markers. I was at the Karen Foundation in, uh, I guess, uh, early 1980s. woman remember the name of Sharon Wegshedder cruz and I had an opportunity in my first place of employment to go get training in understanding family systems. So I signed up for this training program, week-long training program in uh, Reading PA, and I was nervous and I showed up there and be part of this training group and we were first night in a big wide circle of about, you know, 50 people and this woman comes out and it, there's this big tension in the air. I'm thinking, what kind of training program is this? You know, And we're going around and we're understanding that there's going to be this guy who's going to be the protagonist in this thing that was going to happen. I'm like, oh, okay. That's interesting he had to pick certain people to be in his story and he picked a bunch of people and then they said we have to pick someone to be you as a boy and he looked across the room and he says him and it was me i go okay that's cool you know the next day i realized that i was not in a training program and i would have never signed up for what i was in i was in a full blown psychodrama experience And I was to represent this man's interior life. And the steering wheel came off.
0: So you mentioned if you
1: knew what it
0: was, you never would have done it.
1: Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) Hell no. I would have scoffed at it.
0: And what do you do when you run into that resistance day to day, right? The world that I come in, the financial community, a lot of the stuff you're talking about is different things that people don't relate to.
1: You know, what do you do when uh, you realize someone has a different light on and they're, they're humming to a different song than you? Let them sing. You yeah, know, let them sing. Let them sing their song. I think the difference is, is to be less troubled by it, to be less troubled by it. And, you know, it takes a long time, I think, Ted, for anyone, certainly myself, to realize that everything happened in its own time, in its own way that something's not really, really up to me or you or anyone else. And it's been really humbling to look around like here with men that are here. They're all ones I'd have never figured. They do not look the part. What is the part? What do you mean by the part? They do not look like someone who would sign up for something like this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Present company included.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They don't look like it. You know, they either look like the guys I grew up with, the guys I worked in the mill with, the guys you would have walked, you know, down Wall Street with, who are humming a different tune, like an anthem, you know, allegiant to it and shaped by it, you know, and it shapes their reality. And it's a self closed loop. You don't do anything about that. You just wait for the trouble to come because it always comes.
0: So, what happened after you had this formative experience? The Karen Foundation. What would you do next?
1: <laughs> oh, it's not what I did next. It was what well, was undone next. <laughs> 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 that lit the fuse. What happened was as I went into interior spaces, I didn't know they were in me. I didn't know they were there. I had a glass ceiling in my life. I didn't know that that was a glass ceiling. I didn't know they were doorways. I just thought that was the four walls of the world. And it opened up a whole new world. What do you do when you're in a whole new world and you experience oneness for real? Oneness for real. I cried so hard, you know, my insides turned inside. I laughed so hard. I thought my eyes would explode. You know, my cheeks hurt. You know this feeling, you know? And then with strangers. And then it starts unfolding, you know, so that it opened me to magic and wonder. It was far beyond the world of reason. And then it went back into doing what I always do. Which is? Follow the prescription again. Yeah. Drink the same Kool-Aid. Walk the same way. Enter back into a world that reflects a reality back to you that says, this is actually who you are. And it took a long time for that other world to come foreground in a way that said, wait, that's real. That's as real as anything. It's as real as going into... Walmart are more real, more real than what I watch people do every day. They they call that for a living, for a living. They don't look alive to me.
0: Yeah. And when you say that's real, what's the that?
1: That. Yeah. What is this? What is this thing that animates us, that moves us? What is this thing that's intangible, that makes the breeze blow, that makes me wanna hug somebody, that makes me wanna close my eyes because I can't stand to look, that makes me wanna reach towards a stranger I don't even know and say something that's not clearly formed. What animates us and moves us and drives this whole thing? I don't have a clue. You know, it reminds me of you know the next thing that happened where I met a woman there at this workshop who worked at a place called Gateway Rehabilitation Center in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, and everything started moving. My first job at Alternatives was the first and last job I ever sought out in my life. Everything else sought me out, and I didn't know how to pay attention to that at first. Mm-hmm. Everything sought me out. That was a whole new orientation. So she calls me up as a follow-up and says, would you like to work here? I'm like, What? <laughs> at the time it was a really prominent place and she wanted me to be part of the, a brand new family program doing these kinds of constellations and I said to her no thank you oh thank you so much I'm still so flattered so honored that you asked but no thank you because I was getting pretty cool at the job I was in she says okay well could you tell me why not I said yeah it's it's pretty far you know it's like a 50 minute drive. it's pretty inconvenient I said inconvenient and we hung up and, oh, man, that haunted me, that word. Wait, inconvenient, an opportunity of a lifetime. I don't want to be troubled by a driving there. Two days later, I called her back, thank God. And that started me on the next part of my path.
0: So what lit the flame for you in that experience at Gateway, and where did you
1: go from there? Well, it's just how it all unfolds, right? You know. So I started learning how to do family work. I just studying family systems, And bringing people together in psychodramas where people step in and play roles. Meeting very fascinating men who mentored me, like Abraham Tversky, who um, was a founder of The Rehab. And Ken Ramsey, people took me to their wing and showed me things and gave me ways of doing this. And then it unfolds. They built this thing at the time that was brand new called Challenge by Choice Ropes Courses outside. And they're like, Hey, what, what, what's that up there in the trees? You know, like, and they told me like, who uses them? And then all the patients and like, why can't the family people use them? In fact, why can't I use them when we're not working? What's this? Well, you know, and we started doing work up in the air. And, and so that created a deeper sense of like stuff being in your, you know, living, being in your body where life is in the body and not just in our heads. And yeah. that showed me another world. How did you create
0: this experience called the hero's journey?
1: I know, right? I don't, how did this happen? <laughs> you you use language that keeps saying like how I did something, you know. It's like the question keeps is like, well, then how did this keep happening? And you know, then the next thing, you know, these are all things that happened, Reading a man by the name of Joseph Campbell, and it was like one of those things where the words jumped off the page. I, I wasn't just reading like on flat paper. But something was being transmitted, and what I was reading, and I remember this one time we're meeting. There's this thing called the zeal of eternity that longs for incarnation in space and time. I'm like, what, the, what does that mean? <laughs> like what? Like that makes no sense. Like the zeal, but what, my body and something in my my psyche is animating the zeal of eternity for incarnation in time. I didn't know that was my job description. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew that. But now I know that's my job description. That's what I do for a living. That's what I do for a living. You know, I, I do that for aliveness to become the zeal of eternity. You know, the way something just has this passionate zeal that lives outside of time that wants to incarnate into one thing it doesn't have, which is form. And so that, that started it. I got, in, I got a hole in. That took me down like, who's this Campbell dude? Another rabbit hole. Another facet on the diamond, ropes, courses, family systems, theory, you know, religion, you know, all these different variables, rehabilitation, rehab, what the hell does that mean? And and it, from there. Yeah. This Campbell dude. This Campbell dude. Uh, Some people
0: might have heard of this movie called Star Wars. What was it about Campbell that influenced that film?
1: Well, George Lucas... Uh, was a fan of Campbell, and you know he he uh, absorbed the myth. You know this whole sense that you know myth is something culturally very misunderstood. We we tend to call myths lies. You know if it's a myth, it's sort of a legend that's not true because you can't actually process it with a linear mind. So a linear mind takes a myth and says, "Oh, that's a lie." It's just a myth. It's just a fairy tale. It's not really real. But what a myth is, is something that's truer than a historical fact. Something more true than whatever a linear historical fact would be. I was born into existence in August of 1959, where it all began with my mother. Historical fact. But we identify with our historical facts as our reality of who we are. And that's the trouble, and that's the limitation,
0: and that's the glass ceiling. So, what's the myth of
1: the hero? Well, the myth of the hero used to be to become more and more, you know, a, a superpower. You know, this idea that you become larger than life, and you stand among the others as an example for others to follow. And that's been a real popular myth. But as culture changes, it reshapes the myth it needs for itself. So then, it creates a new myth which is still arriving in our times. We're not there because there's no more one person that can be the hero. But the hero, I would say, is someone who's always called into unknowing. Not not knowing, but an unknowing, always called beyond the bounds, the rigidifying bounds of the familiar. And what a hero does is it goes beyond the established parameters of the way the world actually is now and experiences what's beyond that world and then brings that back into this world in order to reshape it and renew it and redefine the culture which then reshapes the people in it.
0: yeah, in our field, we hear a lot about what people call a growth mindset. Oh yeah, that
1: and self-improvement, man. They're pretty underrated. When
0: you described this, that's what came for me,-huh was this idea of going beyond what you already know.
1: Yeah, I'm working on myself, yeah, okay. What do you think is wrong with you? What needs improvement, do you think? Yeah. And how are you looking at that? Yeah. And is it trouble worth having? Or are you trying to get rid of that trouble by improving yourself? Oh, keep improving. Let's see how it goes.
0: What's the alternative?
1: Well, the heroic task is facing what is. And not trying to change what is. That's called a tyrant. Philip Shepard writes about that in his books. You know, New Self, New World, Radical Wholeness. No, that's a tyrant. Tyrants try to change the world around them to suit them. It's also called the infant, hmm. and rather, we have to change ourselves in relation to what is and adapt ourselves to what is and that's hard, hard work yeah, that's hard work to do that to mature and ripen in to say, "I need you to be different from me so I can be happy." Have a go at that.
0: What was the call for you? that led to the creation of what we're experiencing
1: here? Well, a call always comes when something's missing. You know, you have to be deprived of something. Something has to be absent or uh, undeveloped, and the part of you that's awake and aware knows it. That part of you knows something's missing. That was making me want to seek out of the absence of what was there. So I just always felt like I was seeking and longing for something i knew was missing. And you know, that's the compass heading. It took me years, decades really, to understand that Love Dog's poem by Rumi, you know where it's the longing itself that's the call. And so i feel that, you know, and i get scared when i don't feel my longing. I used yeah. to try to cure it. I didn't know it was the cure. Yeah. Like make this longing go away, but even yesterday i felt the longing. You know, like when i feel the sunset it makes me think of people I miss and times like, oh, that aren't here, you know. Yeah. The melancholic sweetness of a Sunday evening. Oh, I got to go into the work world and I feel like I'm just approaching the majesty of the sunset, you know. So what came, you know, through that was vision comes through that. I did a vision quest with Joseph Jastrom in mm-hmm. 1992, whatever it was that I did it. And, and, and that seeded it, of course, because I did a journey, you know, to get away from everything enough to know not to be shaped by forces around me of what to do, but to really feel what that ignited in me and to make, find what was really alive for me that it would be worth doing. Yeah, and that takes a long time.
0: Why don't you describe what it is? this journey we're on here
1: this week. Oh, you're, you're talking about this particular form we're in this right now? This particular form, yeah. Oh, right now we're on a mountaintop in a remote setting in the middle of a national forest in West Virginia in the United States. And we are up here to take leave of our minds, really, and our uh, the fabric of our culture that's shaping us every day into who we we are to be. And we're spending seven days or one lifetime or eternity, whatever comes first up here to undo the things that are called uh, unquestioned assumptions about what is unquestioned and unexamined assumptions and expectations about how we believe life to be. That's not why somebody signs up. Somebody told them to come here and they don't know what the hell they did. Nobody would come here if they knew why they were coming here the same way I wouldn't have went. So, you know, what we do is we come up here and we go into a giant reflecting mirror called this world around the natural world where we have, you know, wide open skies, vast, vast horizons up over that high plains area over there. We have deep green forest fields to get lost in over here. We have uh, cave systems underground here where there's these underwater currents flowing underneath us right now that no one can see or touch or feel that are shaping us right now and so we come up into this nature bowl and we soak in that to get out of this four walls the limitations of four walls and you notice you have been in very few rooms maybe one room in this entire space that we're in that's square that's for a reason we bring the background forward. It's all round spaces here. We're in a Mongolian yurt built by Bill Copper in 1970 that people are still amazed by, right? And so you come up here and you enter into a living myth because where can you actually live it? Because most people read about it and can discuss it. But where do you say, I am going to leave everything I know behind and then I'm going to undo this next And now I'm going to deal with what happens when none of that is here defining me anymore. And now I will define me, but I don't know how that goes. And now there are no instructions and the prescriptions are all gone. And that's the reorientation process towards mythic worlds where your ability to be right here, right now, which takes work to animate something that starts to take over and then you got to pay attention to it. And then you have to yield. Great heroic act, act of our times is to surrender to something beyond ourselves that starts to seep into us. These water droplets that we are, oceans, start to swim in us when we yield to the ocean. So we use elements. We use different things to take us up in the air and under the ground and into the forests and you know around fires and all kinds of things to exchange on a body level something else that gets animated that may or may not be coming through to someone who's listening right now that makes perfect sense and no sense at all. Because you can't grab it. And the more you try to grab it, the more confused you are. But if you let it seep into you,
0: hmm. Michael, I know my experience here on the mountain was truly transformative for my life. And I know it has been for the men that I've been here with. And I wondered if it made sense to share a little bit about
1: that. I'm I'm not quite sure how to go about it, but why don't we dive in? Yeah, I think that's the way in, you know, just like that is to say, I don't know how this goes or how to share this or where we can go, but that's in the spirit of the journey. You know, and you use two words, truly transformative, and maybe we start there like, what's really true? What, What do you mean exactly for you when you say transformative? Hmm.
0: I had heard about the journey from a friend. Logged it in the back of my head as oh, that
1: sounds strange. Yeah, so that's the call, right? Yeah. To an adventure, right? There's something, you hear a call, something sticks. Yeah,
0: well, it, it's something stuck, but it sounded a little strange. And some years later, a lot happened in my life, and I felt the need to to dive into a, something different, change in my life. And and I remembered that, and I called him up, and he told me next to nothing. He said, oh, that's going mm-hmm. on? Yeah, maybe you should go. yeah And... You know, that first year on the mountain, I learned life lessons that I I just didn't know where they were coming from, didn't know how I didn't learn them along the way. Mm -hmm. And some came directly, conversations, some came from understanding the experiences of others, and a lot came from this sort of magical environment.
1: Yeah, yeah, a concoction of uh, conditions. So that's how it started,
0: yeah. And it really transformative in the sense that I felt like maybe the colloquial way of saying it was midlife crisis, but that, of course, that's not me. Mm-hmm. There's no crisis. I'm not that guy. But
1: Midlife emergence, right?
0: The, the midlife uh, emergence. A symbol for crisis. Yeah, something, yeah. something needed to shift, and at that process, that, alas, me, the rest of my life started here. So that's how it was transformative. And the other piece of it, I think, is a man in this financial world, in this society. And I was so accustomed to having to rely on myself for everything. Mm -hmm. Maybe I was conditioned that way as a kid, but I learned the power
1: here of what, what you call the we instead of the I. Me too. I mean, and in ways that were very good for shaping me. I was taught to rely on myself and encouraged to, and also had to. I had to rely on myself. Some of that wasn't a choice because nobody was really there. Why? What What happened for you
0: that well, that was the case?
1: Adults were adults doing adult things in the adult world. And kids were just around. You know, well, you didn't raise a kid. You fed a kid. <laughs> you know, you schooled a kid. You didn't raise them. You didn't cultivate a child in my Blue-collar neighborhood, you—you you kept a child, you know the way you keep an egg in a nest, and you know, and give it the things it needs. But there was no inner world, and that—that that wasn't a real world. And heavenly things were for the next life. So, do the right thing, and you'll get the reward in the next life, which never really comes in this one. And when you say reliance, if like even if you give me your hand for a minute, and rather than rely on yourself, when you say, when you, I lean into you and you lean into my hand and we rest in it, there's a dynamic tension we can feel and there's an aliveness I feel now in my body. How do I give this to myself, you know? I could do a push-up and be in the same position to give that for myself, and that's good. But this feels like a living presence, different. Yeah. You know, like this is where we're relying on one another, which is very different than depending on you and you carrying me.
0: So that, for me, was that transformative process and there've been so many lessons along the way that you either hear or I guess feel or come to you mm-hmm. from being here. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, these universal truths that, you know, about the way the world really is or how it, how it works in this world, I think the biggest suffering that I, I saw even for myself this year, that, that I'm growing in appreciation, you know, the deep wound a lot of us carry is nobody showed us how the world works? Sure. Like how it works. So even you think about financial investment, and I don't know how. Do you show me or do you do it for me? And let's, does that work? You know, not unlike the priests, you know, with access to God. Yeah. You know, do you show me God <laughs> or do you <laughs> talk to him for me or do you barter it? or broker it this thing around like a watch that like i don't know how to make it in the world is so deep 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 seated this great fear because they don't we they don't show us how the world works and one of my favorite campbell quotes is is if you want to help this world show people how to live in it show them how to live in it you know show them how to live in it and It's so, there's so much shame when we don't know how and envy when like, Ooh, you know how Mm, you have a really nice house. How'd you get that? Yeah. How'd you get that nice house? What do do you know that I don't know is that that's that deep underground competitive current rather than saying, well, you want to learn how (laughs) because we don't always want to learn how we want to be given. Just give it to me. Just give me a house like that. I don't know how you get one or you get alone, build one. Like show me how to access a living myth. Yeah. You know, so that this journey comes alive and you show me how you create the conditions. Like we say, well, I can't tell you how you come alive inside, but I can create conditions that allows me to come alive and maybe others to come alive. And you sit in the conditions. I can't tell you how to get that raincoat off of you, but I can get a sun beating on you maybe pretty hard. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I can't make you take the raincoat off. Yeah. You know, I can't make you want to reveal what's under there, but I can turn up some heat to make you want to take your shirt off. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's that kind of thing. We need the right conditions, but no one ever shows us how to, I think. Yeah. And part of what we do is show people how.
0: Yeah. Boy, I remember you telling me a few years ago, this concept that really resonated for me, which was, while well, your parents didn't have all the answers because no one told them. Mm-hmm. I think the story you told was you're walking up to a bridge to cross a river and the bridge isn't there. And you turn to your father and say, dad, where's the bridge? And he says,
1: what's a bridge? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. what do you mean bridge <laughs> yeah that they can't give us what they weren't given or they went and weren't given it and it created a hunger of them to go get it you know i give yeah. and some of the deeply satisfying things is learning how to give somebody what i never got but what's really painful is watching someone try to give to someone else out of their deprivation, out of what they were never given. They compensate all of us. When we get wounded, that wound becomes our gift. Because then through that pain and wounding, I understand something. I'm awake to the world now and I see you hurting. And I get how that goes and what you need. But if I'm wounded and don't know, I will also say, I don't want to be the wounded one. I want to be the one that helps wounded ones. Yeah, And I want to be a white knight in shining armor. And you can be my damsel in distress, and that's a match made in hell. So say that again. If you're not in touch with your wound and your deficit or your flaw, and you don't know that it's in you and active in you because you've disidentified with it, and you say, I don't want to go there anymore, and you haven't genuinely had people go there with you and help you transform it into a healed whole, you'll compensate by disidentifying. And now instead of being the wounded one, you will be the helper.
0: What is it that
1: brings someone here? I mean, I know what brought
0: me here to someone have to have that. I had a rough patch.
1: No. Does
0: it have to happen that way? It
1: doesn't have to be like that though. You know, you can't say you had traumatic childhood. That's why you're here. No, but you know, trouble always comes, you know, there, Here's this interesting uh, comparison about you know where the Christian Bible has evolved. You would look at these scriptural passages that are, in comparative religions, these things all line up from different cultures, right? That's what Campbell said. These myths are alive in all cultures and all times. But like the, the reductionism from the Greek translation of the Aramaic and in the English is, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, Knock and the door will be opened to you. Well man, that's a fairy tale (laughs) for children. Yeah. Ask. First of all, ask. Ask what? And ask when you really need help. How hard it is to ask, number one. When you ask, you don't receive. Right. You know, you don't just get the answer. That forecloses. You know, we all live on the surface. Ask me a question, I'll give you an answer. Can we move on? Question number two, please skim the surface, go down the line and wait till it's just one gray line of of collection of knowledge. Oh boy. So ask and you shall receive. No seek and, and you shall find. No knock and the door should be open to you. No ask and be troubled, seek and get lost in the seeking, knock and feel the barrier. Knock against the barrier, and where do you go from there? So, in the Upanishads, would say the trouble that's worth it, so that you evolve and grow and learn how and find out how it works, not to get to the end. To get into it, now by the end, is to be fully in this world before you leave it. Yeah, and then in that, like you experienced here, in all the trials, the boon is underneath the ordeal. And you get an adventure and you get an ordeal and they overlap. One becomes the other. This is so great. Oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, shit. Or, oh, God, I am just so miserable. Whoa, I didn't see that coming. So then something rises out of that mix is where God is. Yeah. Then ask and then you receive beyond what you ask for. Then you seek, and in how lost and disoriented you are, you find a new orientation. And when you knock, you get through the barrier, and at the belly of the beast where you feel like there's no way through, it's not the way you were looking. The forest finds you, and something opens beyond what you could see before.
0: Yeah, it it reminds me of this, the Headspace meditation app. There's this great line about no matter how dark the clouds are, there's always a blue sky above it. But sometimes you got to sit through the thunderstorm.
1: Yeah. And you can only see the sun half the day. Right. But if you really want to keep seeing the sun, you got to look at the moon. <laughs> yeah, It's a different sunlight. Yeah. Right. And, and so from the mythic journey, from Campbell's perspective, he would say, well, you know, we're always seeking the sun. Well, you can't get it every day. You get it some days. Yeah. But you don't despair when it's night. And then you learn to, to see that, you know, we're all to become like the moon. We reflect the sun, but I can't look directly into the sun. I can't look directly into God. I'd burn up, but we can be reflections of that, right? Yeah. And then even that, even that'll be gone for three days out of the month. Yeah. One of those lessons and those dichotomies
0: that I took out of being here was, and it took me a while to realize that, wow, I've tried to control everything in my own life. Hmm. And the motto that you've created for the hero's journey is be the hero of your own life. Mm-hmm. And as I've come to embrace that, those are actually entirely opposite things.
1: Mm-hmm. I think if I would rewrite that now, not that it would make much more sense to anybody, but I think, yeah, to be the hero of your own life, I'm not even sure that I there's any motto I like, all mottos, you know, lack the distillation needed, really. There's no, no words point to the source. But to say, to be in charge of your own aliveness. You know, be the hero of your own life means to be, be, uh, be responsible to see to it that you are alive, fully alive, fully alive and includes tolerating all the places in you that are not yet alive and may not be fully alive in this lifetime. Yeah. You know, it's not by being you rah, rah, rah all the time. That's just, you know, bullshit on the surface.
0: Super interesting that in this, in the financial world, You hear a lot about people who strive for traditionally defined success and then feel something empties the word or flat or hollow. hollow. And I think that that is a call for this type of adventure for sure.
1: Yeah. You know, people, I think come through one or two doorways, everything fails or everything works. Both ways get you there. I was thinking of this earlier when you were talking, you know, this term currency, is an interesting term to me what it means to have currency what does it mean to be current you know and to to be able to obtain a currency any kind of valuable currency is the ability to exchange it not to collect it but to exchange it and when we have a lively a life-giving exchange i can give you a current of my poetry and you can give me a current of your lived experience of something. And we exchange and it has holds value to the two of us. And when we turn it into a thing, when we objectify a currency, it becomes this static thing. We would call in religion a false god, an idol, because we're worshiping a, a static structure. Those statues, they don't say anything. They rigidify. You know, when you have a false idol, it rigidifies and it, it's, it's dulled. It has no life in it. So when you think of like investment, right? It's very different than paying a fee versus um, providing an investment that offers a yield with no guarantee. But we're all looking for the guarantee. Yeah, but tell me the one with the least risk.
0: Oh my God, yeah.
1: Can I go that way? Well, in the end, it becomes the final danger because of the constriction. Oh, and now you've accumulated great wealth. Well, I guess now you better start protecting it. In separating yourself off from the rest of everybody else, they don't take it from you, yeah. And and now begin the suffering, right? Right. And that's why that's I think the meaning behind the Christian version of it's easier for a, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's where that comes from, yeah. You know, because the eye of the needle was actually a gate in Jerusalem that was a narrow gate in order to enter the gate you had to take all your goods off the camel to get the camel through mm-hmm. to get into the inner walls of the city and so in that same way uh, when you it's, it's, it's what's wrong with accumulation of anything wealth status success it's great enjoy it now when you cling to it you will not be able to get into the kingdom of the myth because it's here you know, that's where, I don't want to turn this into a religious conversation, but when they say that, you know, the kingdom of heaven is before you, but you can't see it, it's because you've over-accumulated yeah. or you're starved right, and you're, you're you're on a survival mode. So you can't pass through the gate into the you know, yeah. sanctums.
0: I know in this, you know, this experience, every time I've come, I never would have thought I'd be here, what, five years in a row and until yeah, next year. I never year, really thought year. I'd be here.
1: 20 <laughs> some uh, years now. exactly it's a
0: different feeling and then you go back mm-hmm. so in a couple of days we'll go back to mm-hmm. work and paying bills mm-hmm. and families and kids
1: yes after jack cornfield says that and in, in, in his uh mindfulness uh, book the book's called after the ecstasy the laundry <laughs> exactly yeah that's the name of the book right uh, yeah because they're the same Some of us suffer from uh, and don't know it from grandiose fantasies. That's not a myth. That's not a living, unfolding a living myth. That's a dream world. And we live in dream worlds. And so you're in danger when you come to something like this and say, Ah, I'm living the dream. Well, you know, after sleeping and dreaming, there is a third thing called waking up. Yeah. (laughs) I forget who said that one again. It's called waking up. And now you're awake to the fact, like, Oh, it's a shithole of a world. You know, oh my God, look at this over here. Oh God. Airports, which I personally can't stand being in. And, and look at the poverty here as I drive out of this uh, West Virginia Hill and oh, I got bills to pay and oh, I've got the grind. Yeah, the world as it is. And and where do you reject ordinary reality? All the mystics embrace the ordinary reality. It's in the the sip of the wine. It's in the the reading of the poem, or we drop underneath it, because this is just, you know, these are words on a page here that you see. Yeah. What are those, you know? And so this ability to practice, like, how do we do it in an ordinary way? Our man Joseph Jostrob here, you know, his book Sacred Manhood, Sacred Earth, that he wrote as part of the vision quest I was on. He's learned to play in the most ordinary of ways. He picks up a plate at dinner and starts tapping on it, and all of a sudden. <laughs> it's a dinner plate man yeah. <laughs> You're playing one note on a guitar string and everybody's buzzing yeah. you know what is that so it's that ability to have extraordinary presence and attention in the here and now moment or realizing you know that's the goal and an ordinary conversation that you and I are having it's an ordinary conversation
0: we can also take it to a, a different level. And so let me try to ask you some questions that might bring you there. My own experience, and I think a lot of the listeners on this show are a certain personality type in those four walls, type A, high achieving, financial, we know the model. I'd love to have you take me through some of the common Aspects of that personality type, and just share with me what comes to your mind when I mention these things. So, the first is a highly self confident, know it all type person. A fool.
1: A fool. Why? Fools are certain of everything. What makes a fool a fool is you don't know that you're one, and you can't make use of it. And the biggest fools are the smartest people, the brightest bulb in the room, who are seduced by their own minds into a belief that they know. And they know more than others, and they know better than others. And it's a really useful tool because they have cool things you get. You get things like money and women and power and status and prestige. Those are those are deep allures, but you know on the hero's journey myth, if we we look at it through that terrain and that map, it's an interesting thing about the boon. The boon you get is commensurate, right, to the consciousness you have at the time you're gifted with something. So if I'm awake this much, and you say, hey man, I got a genie. I'm going to let it out of the bottle. And I'm going to give you one wish. What do you want? Someone's going to say, an ice cream cone. I really want an ice cream cone. And oh man, was that good. And you got your boon. And someone's going to say, I want a beautiful woman. Okay, now here's a beautiful woman. And you got your boon. And now the trouble begins with that. And now you know what I want? I want status. I want I want to be rich. Oh fucking hey when I'm rich. Let's give you all the money you could ever spend. That's your boon. And you get the trouble that comes with that, because it's coming. So what do you really want? And what else is there to want besides any of those things, you know? And what do you do with it when you get it? So the fool, back to where you asked me, won't see the trouble coming won't know what the trouble actually is, and everything will eventually burn down.
0: How about perfectionism? The type of person feels the need for everything to be perfect.
1: They can't bear their own imperfections, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just had a conversation with a probably one of the smartest people I ever met in my life. This little punk is 24, and he's way, way, way smarter than me he's got an intellect and a wit that just makes me want to drop my jaw and he suffers from perfectionism uh the reason we suffer is because he's, he's after something that doesn't exist in nature and so it doesn't exist you know an ideal is something that you strive for but this has no landing you know a beautiful woman you strive for she's a destiny not the destination we, we seek perfection like it's a destination and uh it doesn't exist, but we don't know that. So we rigidify ourselves and we point ourselves like a rigid arrow aiming for something in a linear world. And we go along a timeline or a path or a ladder and we climb. And usually that's when the crisis happens. Uncertainty. We're dealing with uncertainty. Oh, again, same thing. Put it in the same category as trouble. Like, what are you supposed to do with it? Like, relate to it or conquer it? Which one do you want to do? You want to conquer? Okay get to work, man. You're going to be busy and tired. Good luck with that. Yeah. And bitter. But you know, the work of the hero is to embrace a relationship to uncertainty, to understand that the more you you grow your capacity for uncertainty and complexity, the more you have ability to navigate terrains and whole new ways when the uncertainty is a doorway, not a problem to be eliminated, which is again, this unconscious wedding to an impossible task. Yeah about dealing with fear.: I think the hardest thing about fear is, is when you don't understand that you're afraid and you're scared and you don't even know. I remember when I didn't even know I was afraid. I didn't know that was what fear really was, but you know, this lack of oxygen moving through the body, for one thing, this constriction in us and this tightness, this holding, this holding on, but uh, I, I didn't know it was a doorway. And you are asking about, you know, these um, early times of Gateway. I remember the first time I was up at that Robe's Court. I was so afraid of fear. was that John Kennedy quote, thing to fear is fear itself. Like, Cause it's a quaint cliche that's so true. And I remember being up on a, a catwalk, and I remember how afraid I was about being afraid. I remember starting to shake, and I was, you know, shamed and afraid. And then I realized, I mean, I am really afraid right now, but I wasn't afraid about it anymore. And I wasn't ashamed of it. I was I was just like really afraid. Like, yeah, well, you're high in the air, so you're afraid. And I didn't have some impossible task in mind anymore. And I could finally have fear live in me and not be contained in me, eating at me, or it could move through me. It's the ability to have things like any emotion move through and not just shut down or spit out, you know. If you're on a journey and you're, you're any kind of... uh a man on it you pick a fear you're worthy of and what you want is a fear that can take you somewhere again in the trouble is trying to get rid of trouble cuz he can't do it but so much of our easy prescriptive four steps to this they're beautiful lies beautiful seductive or they give you a boon that's way down here <laughs> yeah. way low on the scale But when you choose a fear that you're worthy of and you really get one you're worthy of, it takes you somewhere. It takes you on a journey that you would have never chosen to go on. And before you know it, you know you have trouble worth having. You have a challenge worth facing. You have a a dilemma worth wrestling with that makes you more and brings something out of you that you didn't even know was in you. That's the function of fear. And when that happens, as you know in your own body, from your own lived experiences here, that fear turns to excitement. And that's the that's the alchemical force. That fear is is really unprocessed and unformulated excitement.
0: Some of the things we do here, you talk a lot about the power
1: of the we as opposed to the I. Yeah. Yeah. You listen to guys here say over and over, I feel inadequate. I feel uncertain. I feel doubt. I I has all those feelings all the time. And I am always going to feel inadequate. I try to get rid of inadequacy like I try to get rid of my right arm all the time. Keeps coming back. (laughs) You know, we're always inadequate because we're shooting for perfection because we reject ordinary worlds. We don't know how to be in him and among them, we don't not have a base of good enough. You know, so when I have this I, what I don't know is the I will always, always be inadequate because I is just part of something larger than I, cut off from the whole. And that's the great big myth, in my opinion, and many others who pursue this path of understanding, it's the great lie of a Western white civilized world. That there actually is an I called my body here because I live in a house that gives me a lot of privacy with small you know, windows and shutters to blind everything that makes me feel that who I am is something cut off from everybody and everything else. And it's out there and I exchange with that. But the sense of we, when I feel who I am beyond I, is I as a part of a we, a relational field, like who I am is who I am through this way of talking and looking at you right now and feeling you. Who I am is myself through that. This is me through our exchange. I'm becoming myself again in a new way right now. I feel like me with you. That's a, that's a dynamic living I. And that's what happens here on this journey. It gives me a sense of I. All I need to do is sit in the airport for four hours and the old me starts creeping in. Separate, contained, don't look at me. I don't want to talk to you.
0: I. Yeah. What do you hope to achieve with this program?
1: I keep laughing at your questions. (laughs) I know you do. And I keep asking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What do I hope to achieve? What, do I, I, what does the I hope to achieve? I, am, I used to try to achieve all kinds of things. I'm not trying to achieve anything anymore, you know? Achieve what? What are we doing here? What are we doing here? What are we doing here? You know, I, I think what, what, what I want, what I want to be a part of, what I want to be a part of is I really want to be a part of a new way of living in this world. In this world in desperate need, hungry for this, that doesn't even, like I once knew, if you'd have said, would you like to have some of this? I'd be like, what is that? You know, it's outside of anything I can wrap myself around. But what I want to be a part of and what I want to see happen is I want to see, uh, what we do here spread, not necessarily grow, but spread, you know, where we're enough people who influence enough people and understand there's a different myth at play now. And we got to get enough people on board to understand that there is no I, I, I on high, you know, this hierarchical patriarchal fallacy. And I know, It's a fallacy because I know some of these eyes on high in this world pretty well to know who's really the wizard over here and what's a massive projection of some talking head shouting voices. And I know who's behind the curtain too, you know, with all those buried inadequacies. So I want to see us animate this world in a whole new way. And we have things that we do here that creates an animation. And hopefully enough of these animators here will go home and spread this among their people and their ways and keep coming back to this world because this way is terminal. There's no cure for this way. It's for life, you know? And I want my life to be alive to the very and to uh, exchange these ways where the myth is no one more big cheese. It's a collective ensemble now and we need each other to bring ourselves into a new sense of who we are and what's possible in this world. How do people find out about this journey? I don't know how they find out about this. That's the mystery. Yeah, That's the mystery. How does it find them? Say again, how does it, how will this find them? How will this find you? How will this find you again? How will this find me again? I have no idea, but that's what I want to have happen. The sense of something animates us and, uh, and awakens us or they go to heroes journeyfoundation.org and look around. Just peek in the windows Mm -hmm. a little bit.
0: All right. I'm going to ask you some more questions you might not like, and we'll see what happens from there. All right. Ask me more. All right. what? And then I'm going to ask you a couple. Oh, we could do that too. Yeah. All right, Michael. What was your favorite sports
1: moment? Oh, my? My favorite sports moment ever? Mm -hmm. Ever? No brainer. So my favorite sports moment. Here I am, I'm in the kitchen with my father, I believe the year, the year is 1973, I think, 1973, I'm still a boy, I can see it now, I can see the the AM radio on in the kitchen, because that's how we can listen to it, and I'm listening to a football game. (laughs)
0: Let me guess. Pittsburgh Steelers.
1: I'm listening to the Steelers. Steeler Nation, part of which I remain a loyal follower to this day. And Steeler Nation, I am listening to Bill Hillgrove still calling it Myron Cope, Jack Fleming, and it is fourth quarter of the very first playoff game the Steelers have been in. In this new configuration of time, it's fourth quarter. I think there's, you know, 33 seconds left. Terry Bradshaw is going back to throw a pass. He throws a pass. We're playing the Oakland Raiders in Pittsburgh in the Three Rivers Stadium. And he throws a pass intended for John Fuqua, the halfback. And instead, Jack Hit him, hits him at the very instant the ball arrives and the ball goes flying in the air. And just as it's about to fall to the ground, a man by the name of Frank O'Harris, not Frank O'Harris, Frank harris catches the ball at his feet, at his shoe tops, just before it touches the ground, supposedly, and picks it up, runs tiptoes down the sideline into the end zone for a touchdown to take the lead. And win their first playoff game. Thank you for asking. The immaculate reception. The immaculate reception that if you watch on the NFL Network, the top plays ever, it might be number one. Did I embellish that a little bit? A little bit. Well
0: done. Well done. What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: Besides uh, people who drive in the left lane that's the passing lane on a highway? why do they do that (laughs) that's the one you pass in you don't pull up alongside the other car and just stay there and not pass them (laughs) why create a bottleneck on a highway i don't get it (laughs) how's that for a pet peeve sounds good (laughs) what's the riskiest thing
0: you've ever done
1: probably the thing i'm about to do next today Maybe not the riskiest thing, but I I put, use that as my compass heading. So it's not a thing. It's dialing that up and say, okay, where's the vulnerability? Where's the edge? I'll be a fool for that. Fool for love. I think, you. Know, and I remember the first time I I did that. I, I think it was when I learned how to tell a woman that I loved them. I loved her deeply, and I didn't need anything back. But that's when I understood it was the speaking of it was the empowerment. I didn't need her. I was willing to tell her without her having to love me back. What teaching
0: from your parents has most stayed with Mm -hmm. you?
1: (sighs) My father had integrity. What does that mean to you? taught me how to respect other people and show respect in order to get it. That you you look people in the eye. You notice when people need help and you just help without asking. And you do simple things to give people dignity. And from my mother, it's just love no matter what.
0: No matter what. No matter what. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: Hmm. What life lesson have I learned that I wish I'd learned long before I did? Hmm. Probably would have told you someone about how to make it with a woman. You know, really make it with a woman that I have learned and know how to do. I think I would have hurt less people and been less hurt. You know, that that love isn't a feeling. That you feel to feel good about that love is is your ability uh, to make an ordinary life go better, and love is the ability to withstand somebody at their ordinary worst. Their, and ordinary, their worst. ordinary worst, and to live with it, and rather than have them eliminate it in them, you live with them with it better than they live with themselves in it. And I wish I would have known in order to make it with a woman, you have to always look for what she teaches you next. And she has to be able to teach you. And if you can't find something to learn from her, you shouldn't be with her.
0: What is a boon?
1: A boon is the, the gift you receive from the world beyond your wildest ability to imagine. It's beyond your comprehension. It's the thing waiting for you that you can't even conceive of yet that would like to come through if only it were allowed. So the boon is, you know, for the boy, you know, has been that deep longing, you know, your, your deepest Christmas wish. And it's something that only you can have. Only you can, it can be for no one else. It can only be for you and it can't be. For you, because you wish for it, it has to be more and other than that. It can't just be your ego's desire. That's just a win, <laughs> you know. And the winning makes you small when you win like that. The boon is something that you're given, and you feel bestowed. You feel it like it's been bestowed on you, and you're like, wow. You feel unworthy of it, as you should. You don't know if you're up for it. It's worth, like you don't even know if you can digest it. It's it's beyond what you imagine possible. A love. A way of life, a wonder, you know. For me, like poetry, is a boon—a boon for me, one among many.
0: Let's let's, uh, let's give an example of how this works. Why don't you take out a book? I'm gonna pick a number.
1: Oh, I have. Well, give me. It, give me the, well, well give It's me. it's not a book. This look like a book to you? Right? It does well, kind of looks like a book. Looks right? like a journal. Looks like a journal. It looks right? like a Something. magic.
0: Formula. I'm not uh, sure what it's it is.
1: something well worn. I'm going to tell you what it is, so that you know what you're what you're asking from.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. So what this is, this is a well. It looks like a book. It's a well. See, from a, from the, the external perspective, it's a book, a journal. From a mythic perspective, it's a well. It's a wellspring, and something rises out of the wellspring. When you look down in the well, you can't see it, but something comes up from the well. So you want something to come up from the well for you, Ted?
0: Yeah. And for everyone (laughs) listening.
1: Yeah. And for everyone listening, oh, this could be for you. what this is here is every, there's 123 poems in this book that I hand wrote the way you carve and whittle into a stick. I whittled these poems into this well at the bottom of this well are 123 poems, Ted. And if you would like one to rise up and greet you, you would have to dare, if you dare, to pick a number between 1 and 123.
0: And the one that popped up for no reason at all is 77.
1: 77, always the odd number with you. (laughs) (laughs) You notice that. And the pairs, you know, number 77. Seventy-seven out of a hundred and twenty-three, Ted, huh? This is a, a circle um, a circle poem. This is a poem about the we. You picked the wee body poem, Ted. No, it picked you. You picked the number. And so, you know, for those of you listening, if you hear it with your ears, then, then you just looked at the menu. Maybe what you could do is just you know, settle into your chair a little deeper. You know, take a breath, close your eyes even. And you may be by yourself, but uh, we're with you right now. We're sitting in a circle, in fact, and you, the listener, are sitting beside. There's been men, by the way, wandering in and out of this podcast, and we have one sitting with us. we got Charlie sitting beside us now. Ted, you're across from me, and in the fourth chair is you, the listener. We make a circle right now. Let's play at the circle. And so as you take the fourth seat, listener... We form a circle, and when we sit still, and when we become still in a circle, and stillness grows in us, an energy, you know, an energy of spirit can fill us. And until we surrender, and surrender into silence, until we surrender into a deep stillness and silence, we'll remain on the choppy surface of the mind. And we'll just bob along there instead. But as our breath goes deep and long and quiet, we go beyond thought. As our breathing, our breath goes beyond the choppy surface of mind that stills, we lengthen our breath. We follow it all the way out. We go beyond thought, underneath confusion, past old sticky fears. And even doubt all grows quiet. They all settle down. And when we sit here and we sit in a circle and we share breath and we share truth and we speak and we listen, a mysterious speech And the listening to the speech begin to mix and interact and transform. And who is it now? Is it the speaker affecting the listener? Or is it the you, the way you're deeply listening, that evokes this speech out of me? I have no idea. And it transforms these once-separating separate energies and entities into one woven being for a minute in time. For just one minute in time, woven one being, present right now, and fulfilled, present right now in this breath, full and filled. That's my interpretation of Dana Folt's poem. Number 77 from the book, if you're counting.
0: Is it the quality of the speaker that evokes?
1: Is it some superhero speaking or is it a collective body of listening that's happening? of an ensemble listening that picks any one of us at any moment in time to change everything for a minute. And if it once is, it always is. Michael, thank you so much for the gifts
0: you've given me and for taking the time.
1: Well, we're going to go overtime for one second, Ted. Uh-oh. And I'm going to shuffle the deck. All right. Take out a wild card. And this is a poem, uh, one of uh, of the group that I'm walking with. We're circling around this well of a poem right here, again and again. And just like you look at me for a minute, and then look at this poem here in a minute. And I want you to read this to me from the well you have inside of you.
0: When I met my muse.
1: Oh, Ted, tell me that again.
0: When I met my muse. Oh, I want to meet my muse. Read on, brother. I glanced at her and took my glasses off. They were still singing. I glanced at her and took off my glasses. They were still singing. They buzzed like a locust on the coffee table and then ceased. Her voice belled forth and the sunlight bent. Mm sunlight bent as her voice belled forth. I felt the ceiling arch and knew that nails up there took a new grip on whatever they touched. (laughs) I am your own way of looking at things, she said. I am your own way, your own way of looking at things, she said. When you allow me to live with you, every glance at the world around you will be a sort of salvation. When you allow me to live with you, Mm -hmm. every glance at the world around you will be a sort of salvation. That's right. And I took her hand.
1: And I took her hand.
0: William Stafford.
1: My man, William, and when I am your own way of looking at things, is the boon when you merge and blend with the muse that moves through eye, and every glance is a salvation that's called a boon. Thanks for this time. Thank you.
0: Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this and I'm sure you do too. So, I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list.